You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. I'm Joseph Casco alongside Mark Nortz, and we're joined by joined now by Dr. Chris Bennett. He's an emergency room physician at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Uh, Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So mostly we've been asking people to tell us their Winthrop story. What year did you graduate, and uh, how did you end up at Winthrop? Yeah, so I graduated from Winthrop in 2009, uh, started in 2005, straight through four years. Grew up in a very small area in South Carolina, a city called Chesterfield, South Carolina. Uh, when I was applying for colleges, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I came from a family where I was a first-generation college student, so I applied pretty broadly, went to a couple of interviews, and I remember my interview at Winthrop an absolutely beautiful sunny morning and we're walking down um, the front path in front of Tillman uh, from at that time was one of the student halls and the Winthrop ambassadors were lined up and they had balloons and they were so energetic and enthusiastic and, and just from then on the entire day I just felt at home and it wasn't really much of a question where I was going to go it's a question of how I could get there the rest just sort of happened. I was lucky enough to get accepted to Winthrop, and I spent four very meaningful years there. You know, it's funny. It's been a recurring theme with people that we've spoken to about how the first time they saw the campus and the beauty of the place really, really touched them. So that's something we've heard from people a lot. As a first-generation college student, what was that like for you not having the family background to, you know, a mom and dad that could provide some advice when when you're not sure how you're going to get all these papers written or all these exams done. Um, what was that like, and were there resources at Winthrop that were able to help you get through that? It was weird. I, um, I very vividly remember being dropped off by my parents, who had never really done this before, obviously, and had no context for it. And my first couple of days at Winthrop were really a pretty steep learning curve. Obviously, my roommate at the time and people in my hall, I was one of the honors. Uh, honors association students had a bit more of a feel for like what college life looked like. So I learned from them for a little bit. I think completely independent of no real resources or no real precedent for it, it was the, my co-student on the floor with me, the honors university program. Uh, they were really quite helpful, um, helping me figure out like what a path to success looked like. I think the faculty as well were just extremely important. I think the thing for me that really defined my Winthrop experience was just the openness of both the students and the faculty, and I think I was not really the exception as much as the expectation. Everyone was there to help me. Um, I didn't really know what to do and how to do it, but there was always someone who had experience and expertise in it, and it was always very easy to find out what needed to be done and how best to do it. Do you have a favorite Winthrop moment or a quintessential Winthrop story that you think really encompasses your time at the university? I do. I actually really do. And I think this is probably one that's shared by many, but it was my first convocation. Um, going in, hearing the organ, seeing the faculty come in and all of their regalia. And now, I mean, again, coming from an area with like no family history of going to college, you have just hundreds of people in a room and then all of a sudden there's music playing and the faculty come in and they're wearing these brightly colored gowns. They're all very different and then it's just a very surreal experience. And then you finish and you walk out on the front lawn over towards Tillman and it just, you're lined uh, on both sides of the walkway by faculty who are 
you know, some of them are hugging you, some of them are giving you high fives. And it's just walking into this world that you never really knew what it looked like. You never really knew what to expect. And I think it's, I think if I had to think of a moment at Winthrop that I think about often and I think about fondly, it would be that. Just in looking at your your bio, your resume, uh, I see that you majored in biology and chemistry at Winthrop. Uh, When you graduated in 2009, did you know that you would go on to medical school? Was that the plan? And if so, how did Winthrop help get you there? That's a good question. And and no, it wasn't actually clear to me. I uh, was a a cell biology researcher at the university in the Department of Biology with Dr. DeMaculingen at the time. And I actually, after graduating from Winthrop, was accepted into a PhD program at Duke. It wasn't until probably two, two and a half years into my PhD at Duke that I really became aware that my interest in, um, in science were actually interested in medicine. I had more exposure to clinical medicine. I, I will say that the faculty in the department were very supportive and obviously initially supporting me to get into a PhD program and helping me do that. But I think when I had made the decision to transition from a PhD over to an MD, I think there was absolutely no reservations as well. And I think the department was, having been out of the university system for several years, they remembered who I was. We had obviously been in close contact for many years since graduation. Um, without a doubt, they were very fundamental in coming together, helping me figure out what it looked like and helping me sort of navigate the process of medical school. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here, and we're speaking with Dr. Chris Bennett. He's an, an, an emergency room doctor at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Uh, we just want to ask you, what's been your experience like as a doctor working in an emergency room during this pandemic? What, what have you seen? Um, what have things been like for you there? I think at least in Boston, we are one of the cities that has been hit, um, not to the level that you've seen in New York, but pretty, pretty bad in terms of the total number of cases as well as the total number of deaths. A lot of what I do in emergency medicine is trying to identify critical illness with very short, obviously, very limited information in very short periods of time. The, the current pandemic has made that a bit more difficult. I will say that at least initially, several weeks ago, we started seeing patients uh, who had viral symptoms consistently. Pneumonias, but weren't really presenting the same way. Um, I think as the field, emergency medicine and medicine overall, began to learn more about the coronavirus and we started to see more of it and sort of telltale signs and symptoms and patterns of those, uh, we became more aware of it. I think weeks and weeks passed and we started noticing um, quite uh, quite sad, actually, but younger patients, patients without really any past medical history would come into the emergency department quite sick, some of which who would require breathing tubes, some of which obviously would require admission to the ICU. The, the pandemic continues. We are now in the surge, or at least the plateau phase of the surge here in Boston. We still continue to see a number of very sick patients, a number of those are older individuals who have pre-existing medical conditions. Um, it's a very different type of medicine in a lot of ways. When we first started seeing the pandemic, it felt like there was a lot of volume drop. So a lot of the patients who would otherwise come to the emergency department didn't seem to come. So there was a little bit of um, calmness in the department. We don't say the word quiet in emergency medicine just because 
of superstition, but it just seemed like there were less patients. And over time, that changed. And it changed in that the only thing that we actually were seeing was COVID. Um, and right now, I mean, I just finished this shift this morning around 1 a.m. I went home with the bed, just getting up and getting on my day. Um, but it's still just that we continue to see predominantly patients uh, who have COVID. The interactions with these patients are very different as well. I mean, you walk into a room, even if they've come in with a broken ankle, your concern always is, do they have a virus? Are they asymptomatic? And so there's a lot of barrier that goes into the interaction. You're wearing a gown, you're wearing a mask, you're wearing a shield, you're wearing an N95, you're a glove dub. And how you interact with the patient is so very different. It feels a little bit more removed. And I think that's very obvious both to myself and to the patient. And so the interactions we have feel a little less uh, real and a little more um, cautious, which does change, I think, the dynamic. It's a very scary time for a lot of us, both for our patients, both for the doctors and the nurses that I work with. Um, we're optimistic, obviously, but I think we're all very vigilant as well. So you hear a lot in the news reporting that the majority of these cases who res- that result in deaths are older people, people with weakened immune systems. But then every now and then you hear about an area that maybe there are a few more cases that don't fit that profile. What's been your experience there in Boston? D- do you see any patterns or anything that you can point to of that these are the people who are most at risk? I think I agree that at least for... For the most of cases, the people who are the sickest, the people who require breathing tubes and admissions to the ICU, I think these are patients who are older. Um, more often they are older. More often they have medical conditions, people who have asthma, lung disease, people who are chronic smokers, people who use oxygen, people who have histories of pneumonias, and their lungs are already not normal. And so an additional infection or an assault can make it very difficult for them to overcome it. Um, so I definitely think, at least from what I've seen, what I've seen from my colleagues and what we hear coming out of China and what we've heard coming out of Italy and what we see coming out of New York as well as what we saw in Seattle as well, it's pretty consistent with that. Um, I think from an epidemiologic standpoint, though, you're correct. There are a number of patients who come in who just don't fit the mold. And it doesn't have to be just the respiratory complaints associated with the coronavirus. I think we see um, that the virus obviously is primarily respiratory in many situations, but there are just a number of other things that patients are coming in with. Um, sometimes people come in with very weak hearts as a result of myocarditis, so inflammation such to the point where the heart doesn't squeeze appropriately, which in and of itself is very life-threatening. At the same time, we're seeing presentations that could be consistent with meningitis and encephalitis. We're seeing patients coming in with gastrointestinal complaints. And then we're seeing patients who come in with absolutely no symptoms at all. And so the the patterns, at least what we've seen in the older population, look pretty clear. But again, we don't know a lot about the virus, but there's more to be learned, more that we just don't know. And I think right now, although we have these patterns, they're, they're again, continue to be people who just don't fit it. And I don't know if it's the exception to the rule or just different presentations that we just haven't quite learned enough about. How long do you think it might be before we have a real clear understanding of what this coronavirus does, how it spreads? Uh, I guess what makes it so difficult is that this is a novel virus, correct? Correct. And I think in terms of the concept of novel, I think it's just, 
I think it's pretty clear to us from a basic biology standpoint how the virus itself is able to infect um, infect us. I think it's also mostly clear to us how it's transmitted, the way in which it's transmitted, how long it can live on certain substances, and the precautionary measures we could and should take. I think one of the things that we need to learn more about, but I think we don't have enough information on is how prevalent it is. Unfortunately, a lot of the testing that we have been able to do has been focused on patients who really just sound like they have COVID. In medicine, we have this sort of philosophy, if it looks like a duck, it sounds like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it likely is a duck. And the reason why I say that is if someone looks like they have COVID, they are coughing and wheezing and sound like they have COVID and all the signs point to COVID, then a confirmatory test is helpful for us. But at the end of the day, there are many different patients who may have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all that we truly have not been able to test, that we haven't tested, and that we're not going to be able to test that would really inform us how how the spectrum of COVID would look like. Um, and I think that would inform many different types, just from, from a public health standpoint on how best to prevent it. Uh, from an epidemiologic standpoint, how actually you know common it is, like what's the actual incidence, what's the prevalence of COVID. Um, I think that's where the biggest the biggest emphasis has been, at least for us in the basic sciences and clinical sciences and epidemiology are looking for more towards now. Um, treatment, obviously, is an area that continues to be very contentious, what to do and what not to do and how to do it. There's a lot of very interested parties looking at a lot of different therapeutics. There are mixed results. A lot of studies are very anecdotal and very small numbers of patients enrolled. So I think it's still a very early area with... Um, really no clear wonder drug, which I honestly don't think there will be for this. Um, but again, we have a lot of understanding of the basic biology, but I think in terms of what to do beyond that, it's still a lot of gray. Uh, I see a couple of stories from Boston area media about that maybe there may have been some COVID-19 cases that we didn't know about prior to March 1st. And I, I've seen similar reporting or similar stories from other places that um, I think in San Francisco, I had seen something about there were a couple of patients who were tested posthumously and, uh, you know, found out that they had passed away in early February and, and were positive for the virus. Just in your experience, did you see any people come into the emergency room, maybe even back as far as the end of last year? that had some kind of symptoms and, and maybe you weren't sure what it was yet? Do you, do you think the, that COVID-19 had been in the U.S. and around longer than maybe we have realized? That, that's actually a question that we're all asking ourselves. My colleagues in Seattle, my colleagues in San Francisco, my colleagues in New York are actually asking the same question both to their colleagues as well as their system. Um, I say this with no authority, right? So obviously coming from a single physician working in an emergency department here, but there is concern that it has been here for a bit longer than I think we would or would have hoped it to have been. When we see a patient in the emergency department who has shortness of breath, who has cough, who is, you know, looks and sounds like they have a pneumonia, the first thing we do is get a chest x-ray. And so a chest x-ray can look very classic for a pneumonia, so a very sort of consolidated area on a chest x-ray consistent with a bacterial infection. Um, but in many situations, the chest x-ray can just be a little bit off. There can be some haziness in certain areas of the lungs that doesn't really fit a pattern. And in some of those situations, it can be consistent with an early 
bacterial pneumonia or any typical pneumonia or viral pneumonia. And in many of those situations, that can sort of be the end of what we do um, in terms of testing, per se. Obviously, CT scans, CAT scans are helpful for better clarification. But in people who otherwise don't look that sick or otherwise well compensated, they wouldn't necessarily get additional testing. And so I think we hear stories of people who had pretty profound respiratory illnesses but are otherwise healthy and didn't really think too much about it. And some of them are getting tested and it seems like some of them may have antibodies to COVID. Now, I don't know if, you know, that's part and parcel because they had an infection and that's the infection or maybe they were asymptomatic later and then they tested positive because of it. But I agree. I think a lot of us are concerned that the coronavirus has been here for a little bit more than I think we knew about. And just because of the relative ease of getting back and forth anywhere in the country, it makes it very much a feasible thing to have happened. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing your your experiences with us about that. Just to switch gears a little bit, you, you know, you mentioned about how scary a time this is. I, I can't imagine for yourself and your colleagues working in an emergency room during these times. Uh, one thing we've been talking to people a lot about is how they've been trying to escape from this and how they've what they've been doing to distract themselves. And one thing that seems to come up a lot is music. And certainly we've seen you know, uh, that happened with social media, a number of artists sharing, you know, cell phone performances of, you know, some of their hit songs. Is, is there any music that you listen to to unwind, you know, something that you might recommend to us that we might add to our pandemic playlist as we're all stuck at home and uh, and trying to muddle through this? Yeah, I think, so for context, it's currently cloudy, it's raining, I'm here in Boston looking out a window as we're talking, and it's, you know, been 30 and 40 degrees, and back home, obviously, it seems like it's a bit warmer and a bit sunnier, and so the thing for me that always has been grounded um, has been music, I think. Boyd Jones, many people may not know him, many people may do, was a huge, uh, huge personality in my life at one group, and he instilled upon me a love of Dolly Parton. And so I find myself more often than not going back to things that remind me of home, things that remind me of a bit more of a simple time. So if I had to add a song to your list, both from personal preference and in honor of boys, I'd probably add in Jolene from Dolly Parton. What an excellent choice. I, As we've asked people this question, we hear that uh, I've heard a lot of people mention music that really is outstanding and uh, and really speaks to you. So uh so very good choice. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for your time. Um, you were really fabulous. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Chris Bennett. He's an emergency room physician at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day.